today on Blue 58. The offense won the game for the Packers on Sunday, but the defense has generated its own share of headlines, very few of them good. How concerned should we be about the Vikings racking up late points and yards against the Packers? Let's talk about it. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. Got a lot to get to as we do on most episodes here, so let's dive right in. First, I want to link you to a piece that I wrote on Acme Packing Company this week. Uh, Came out late Monday. Uh, The news breaking late Monday afternoon since confirmed that it looks like Lane Taylor is going to be done for the year. It's a a torn ACL. He's going to need surgery. And as much as I don't want to start the podcast off on a, on a down note, I got to say first how big a, a bummer this is because it, it's been fun to follow Lane Taylor's career. An undrafted free agent in 2013 makes the team has a long, successful career with the Packers. Now two years in a row, he's done in by relatively freak injuries. And that is just really a shame for a guy that has worked as hard as he has to get to where he is in the NFL. So I wrote a piece about that for Acme Packing Company, talking about how it's important before we get to the next man up phase of this thing to sit back and, and reflect on what he's accomplished for a little bit. So here is a little bit about what Lane Taylor has accomplished. First, an undrafted free agent in 2013. Went back and looked at the 2013 draft class. How many offensive linemen have played more games than Lane Taylor's 79 through last Sunday? Just 11. Only 11 offensive linemen taken in the entire rounds 1 through 7 2013 NFL draft have played in more games than Lane Taylor. Taylor has been a very reliable player when he's been healthy, and he's been healthy the vast majority of his career. These last two seasons are, are more the exception than the rule. It was Taylor was the entire reason the Packers felt comfortable moving on from Josh Sitton at the start of the 2016 season. And I think the lasting image for me of Lane Taylor is going to be that legendary throw that Aaron Rodgers had to Jared Cook in that Cowboys playoff game. It's a design rollout that if you read the stuff from the time, Aaron Rodgers kind of put together on his own in the huddle, a design rollout to the left. Lane Taylor is the bodyguard there, making sure that Rodgers can get off the throw. He throws a good block for Rodgers, buys him a little bit of extra time, and you know the rest. Aaron Rodgers delivers a great throw to Jared Cook. The rest is history. The Packers go on to win that game and get to the NFC Championship game. That's the final win of the run-the-table run, because unfortunately it ends the next week. But um, at least for that game, Lane Taylor was right there in the thick of it at the biggest moment, Aaron Rodgers trusting him as his bodyguard on that decisive throw. I also will always remember Lane Taylor stepping in very late in the game as the Packers prepped for the Falcons at the start of the 2017 season and played left tackle in an NFL game, a a spot that he had not played in a long, long time. I was a guard all throughout his time at Oklahoma State, was a guard his entire time with the Packers. The knock on Lane Taylor, even dating back to his his high school playing career when he was being recruited to go to Oklahoma State, was that he was a bad body guy. A little bit undersized, doesn't have the the rippling muscle or the big ectomorph frame that you expect from some linemen. 
I mean, some guys, you look at Jared Veld here, he's just built to play on the offensive line. Six foot eight, 315 pounds with abs. That is not Lane Taylor. Maybe, and I want to say this as politely as possible because Lane Taylor could still probably tear my arms off, though it doesn't seem like he would because he's a nice guy. Maybe a little bit on the doughier side compared to some of the offensive linemen. Not necessarily a, a, a peak of the physical form put it that way, but he gets the job done and he stepped in despite those limitations and played left tackle so successfully that you would never really have noticed that it was a guy that had never played there before. Part of that was because the rest of the Packers offensive line was so bad in that game, just because of the the rash of injuries um, that, you know, almost by default, he had to be better, but still, doing something he's never done before at really any level for the first time in the NFL and not being an utter train wreck is something worth giving him some credit for. Just for way of comparison, just two years prior, near the end of the 2015 season, the Packers had a similar situation where David Bakhtiari was hurt and they had nobody else who could go, so they shifted Josh Sitton, of all people, out to left tackle. He had played some tackle before, was a tackle um, in college, at least for a while, and it did not go well. Taylor did what Josh Sitton couldn't. And Taylor did what Josh Sitton couldn't in a, in a few ways, uh, but that's a discussion for a different day. Taylor has had a remarkable career. Started 46 of 48 possible games from 2016 through 2018, and it is theoretically possible that he could be back in Green Bay next season. But He's also going to be almost 32 years old. He's going to be coming off his second season-ending injury in as many years. It's also a leg injury at a position where a guy's legs start deteriorating, their legs and lower body, lower back injuries really common, start deteriorating really quickly as they get older. This is a high-mileage position. And since the Packers just drafted three interior linemen this spring, They've got Elton Jenkins already. They've got Lucas Patrick already. They could even keep Billy Turner around next year. The odds just don't seem great that Lane Taylor is going to get another go-around in Green Bay. So this is probably going to be it. It's worth taking a second to remember that he's a human being who's had a pretty remarkable journey to get here, and that the journey has been pretty darn good. And I think that's, that's a cool thing about sports. Not everybody gets an ending. Few people get an ending they like. Taylor's not going to get an ending in Green Bay that he he probably likes here. But in light of that, we should take a second and look back at the, the journey that we've been on with him as fans. The Packers won on Sunday. You may have heard that. And most of the stories that have come out of that game have been about the offense, and rightfully so. The offense was great. Aaron Rodgers played really well, the best we've seen from him in a long, long time. But there are some more stories there. For starters, you could talk about some limitations there on offense. Yes, the Packers did pretty well, but they left some points on the field. And also, a lot of the secondary they were beating up on was facing non-teammate NFL competition for the very first time. A lot of young players in that secondary playing against people other than their Vikings teammates for the very first time. 
Don't want to take anything away from what Aaron Rodgers and the Packers receivers and really the entire offense were able to accomplish on Sunday, but we've got to put it in a little bit of context. The B side to that headline is that the Packers defense was uh, a bit questionable at times. Okay, it was a lot questionable at times. The pushback to that, kind of like the opposite, the inverse of that pushback to the offense, was that, well, I mean, if you if you do a little bit of context, you can see why maybe the, the defensive performance really wasn't so bad. But I'm not sure a lot of people are sold on that. Dylan, a YouTube commenter, is a good good example. Red Dead Dylan, love the, love the username there. That is one of my all-time favorite video games. Probably, boy, that's probably in my top three. The first Red Dead Redemption. Not that anybody cares, but that's one of my three favorite video games of all time, probably. Um, anyway, Dylan says, our defense looked very, very bad yesterday. Good thing we scored 40 plus. I know it's early, but we need to fix it now before it grows bigger. But it was a good game. And I think that's pretty fair. Uh, it was good. The Packers scored 40 plus. And it was a little bit concerning that the Packers gave up 34. But also, I get the sense that it's a little bit of a Rorschach test. I I tweeted something out earlier today asking, did you see the Packers give up 393 yards and 34 points? Or did you see that 217 of those yards and 24 of those points came after the Packers were up 29 to 10 with Kenny Clark out of the game? People disagreed with that take. And that's fine. People Reasonable people can disagree. I'm not even saying that I, you know, especially buy into either of those. But Andrew says they didn't just give up 34 points in garbage time. They gave up 34 when the Vikings had the ball for barely over 18 minutes. Seven teams scored at least 34 points this week, and the Vikings were the only losers. The Packers can't accept those defensive woes and expect to win. Brian said 393 and 34 for sure. Doesn't matter when it was. They were certainly... They weren't letting them get it, and the game was certainly within reach. If you're in dime defense, why are you giving up bombs to Thielen? I think Brian's last point there is his strongest. Why were the Packers giving up those big bombs to Adam Thielen when they knew the Vikings were going to pass? But that is, I think, a different discussion here. But the larger point is about how concerned we should be about the Packers' defense. So let's pull on that thread a little bit. First, some other additional relevant facts or just relevant facts in general. First, the Packers did give up 393 yards and 34 points. That is a fact. It is also a fact that 217 of those yards and 24 of those points came after the game was well out of reach. You don't have to be a big believer in win probability to look at the chart of how likely the Packers were to lose that game and see that there wasn't a whole lot of chance for the Vikings to ever come back. This game was never less than a two-possession game. Even with the Vikings rallying late, they still would have had to recover that last onside kick, score another touchdown, recover another onside kick, and score a field goal to win the game. In a minute and 21 seconds. Okay? That's what we're dealing with here. The game was not close at the end. It just wasn't. I think it's also worth noting that Raven Green was out for this game. If you're concerned about the Packers' dime defense, you can't discount that entirely because he's probably going to be their dime linebacker, certainly one of their top three safeties. Additional facts to consider. Kirk Cousins was averaging 10.4 yards per attempt. That's real bad for the Packers' defense. Also worth considering, Dalvin Cook 
as much averaged as much EPA per play as Aaron Rodgers did. So expected points added is a stat we've talked about a few times on here. Won't get into the finer points of it, but basically it means that statistically he was as value as valuable on a per play basis as demigod tier Aaron Rodgers was on Sunday. And it's also worth pointing out, as Andrew said, that the Vikings only had the ball for 18 minutes. All those facts being considered, I think there is slightly more reason to come down on the be concerned side of things more than the it was just garbage time side of things. With the caveats that this is week one, there are a lot of things that can change. There were some injuries there. I think I'm still a little bit more on that side than the than I am on the yeah, it's just garbage time side. And here's why. First, talking about chunk plays, explosive plays. The Packers had 10 explosive plays Sunday. The Vikings had 11. Only three of those came in the fourth quarter, so it wasn't like they were just racking up a bunch of them late. The fourth quarter would be the statistically out-of-reach portion that we talked about earlier. Yes, it was unlikely that the Vikings would come back during that time, but it wasn't like they were just racking up their big plays during that time. They did plenty of damage in the first and second quarters. Secondly, I think you can pretty easily explain away a lot of the drives that went well for the Packers' defense. So there's only three drives that really ended poorly for the Vikings on Sunday. The Packers' offense did a good job of keeping the Vikings' offense off the field, but when the Packers did get the Vikings off the field quickly, here's what happened. There was the drive that ended in the safety. We've learned since then that that safety was not necessarily a brilliant call by Mike Pettin, but Jair Alexander freelancing a little bit and coming up big. It's great because it worked, but that's not necessarily sound defense. It's also worth pointing out that the Vikings were only in that position because the Packers' offense screwed up. They couldn't get the ball into the end zone with three tries from the three-yard line and in. Four tries, maybe. I, I don't remember exactly what the down and distance was on that first play by Aaron Jones. All right? So had the Packers' offense done its job, there's a good chance that the Vikings' offense would have gotten the ball in a different portion of the field, and the Packers' playmaker on defense, Jair Alexander on Sunday, wouldn't have had a chance to freelance like that, okay? So yes, that was a good play by the Packers' defense, but there's a lot of context that goes into having the opportunity to make that play that isn't necessarily good. The second drive that didn't end so well for the Vikings was the interception. Jair Alexander has the interception. Now credit to the Packers for making the play. Jair Alexander had a lot of interceptions that he dropped last year. That was something he said he wanted to work on this season. He said that a lot, and he made a great catch on that interception, but it was also just a horrible throw by Kirk Cousins. Just a horrible throw, period, a horrible decision, a horrible delivery in that particular down and distance in that part of the field with the Vikings trying to drive relatively late to get points. He did exactly what you can't do. The Packers ended up with a short field, and they were in the end zone two plays later. Finally, we've got the drive where the Vikings turned the ball over on downs. Vikings had a fourth and three and were moving the ball pretty well, but instead of going with one of the plays that had been working on that drive, the Vikings made the questionable decision on a fourth down to take a shot down the field. Gary Kubiak had some weird play calls on Sunday, and this was one of them. 
They only need three yards, and they go with a relatively low percentage play. Again, credit to the Packers for executing there, for playing solid defense that resulted in the incompletion, but you can't put that entirely on the Packers either because the Vikings made such a terrible play call. Speaking of, the Vikings seem to manage this game really badly on offense. We said in our preview that the Vikings did a really good job all of last season with play-action passing. But on Sunday, they only ran one play-action pass after doing it so well last year. They only had one throw out of play-action. Technically, the safety actually came on a play-action play, too. Again, a, a very odd call in that part of the field. But the larger point is, is that why stay away from that? Kirk Cousins is dynamite in play-action. The Vikings just didn't run it. The Packers did not do a super great job defending play-action last year. So why not run it? And it, I believe it worked pretty well when they did run it. I don't recall the exact play, but I, I believe that it, it, it was successful. And even if that one single play wasn't successful, Kirk Cousins, again, is very good in play action. Why not do what he's good at? We should also finally point out that the Packers' offense really bolstered the Packers' defense on Sunday. And this is complimentary football. This is something that you want. But this is not necessarily a feather in the cap of the Packers' defense. The Packers' offense made the Vikings pay and kept them on the field again and again and again. Other than the drive right after Jair Alexander's pick that ended in two plays and a touchdown, and the game-ending kneel-down drive, every Packers' drive lasted at least seven plays. The shortest Packers' drive took three minutes and 31 seconds of game clock off the clock. The Packers were just out there a lot, and they didn't give the Vikings' offense a lot of opportunities to get the ball down the field. So all that having been considered... I think we really need to see the Packers perform well for a longer period of time rather than just the, let's say, a half that they played pretty well before we really hand wave any concerns. Yes, Kenny Clark was out. Yes, they may have changed their tactics some in the second half, but still, there is some concerning evidence here. And I really want to see how they do this week against the Lions, who seem, just looking at their injury report so far, just about overmatched in every aspect of the game. It's going to be an interesting trend to watch. Got a couple listener questions, and then we'll let you go for today. Crit asks, should, should A.J. Dillon have been used on that goal line series? He worded it a little bit differently, but the spirit of the question is, is that wondering whether uh, A.J. Dillon should have been used from the goal line there. So I see the thinking here. Big back, slam it in there. Go over the end or go into the end zone just by the sheer power of his will. But I don't think that necessarily is the best way to go. Big back doesn't necessarily mean goal line success. Don't forget that Aaron Jones scored 12 touchdowns of seven yards or less last year. He did plenty of damage in the red zone. For me, it's the play calling in the series that's the concern. And that's something that Matt LaFleur talked about a little bit the last couple of days, too. First down and goal, the Packers run the ball to Aaron Jones. He scores a touchdown, but it's called back. All right? I think he was in, but that's a, a discussion for another day. Second down, Aaron Rodgers throws the ball to Aaron Jones, but not really. It's a rollout pass, pass for Rodgers. Again, don't love the play call here. They sent Devontae Adams, their best receiver, away from the rollout. 
and cut the field in half down by like the one yard line. If you're going to do a rollout, I'm not sure that's that's the place to do it, unless you've got somebody like Jordy Nelson who's so good at finding holes at that part of the field. You just run out of real estate so quickly, and unless you've got somebody who has that skill set, it's hard to convert there. So I don't love that one. Third down, they go with a goal line run out of shotgun. Why? That puts Aaron Jones at a disadvantage. Let him run downhill. When you're taking a handoff out of shotgun, when you get the ball, you're essentially standing still. Especially as the Packers ran it on that play, he just doesn't have a lot of opportunity to maneuver. He should be taking the ball going full speed to really take advantage of that run situation. Also, most of the linemen in that shotgun set are in a a two-point stance. They're not able to fire out or get any leverage either. Then on fourth down, the pass to Devontae Adams just worked. Did work. He just dropped it. So I don't know if A.J. Dillon is necessarily the answer there as much as just going with a different philosophy altogether. Go with what works. Just hand the ball to Aaron Jones and get out of the way. Rudy, the good question asker, asked, is A-Rod uniquely built to play games with no crowd noise? His total mastery of the pre-snap reads and cadence without crowd noise will make all 16 games feel like home games. He might be a legit MVP candidate this year. I have to agree with Rudy here. I think uh, Aaron Aaron Rodgers has unique skills. He's uniquely good at manipulating the play clock. Uh, watching what opposing defenses are doing. He, he can catch them in situations and, and catch them with that hard count, as he did three times on Sunday, and really put the Packers in good situations there. I think we're going to see more free, free plays from Rodgers this year, uh, resulting in big plays for the Packers, and that's a good, exciting thing uh, for Packers fans. Finally, Liz asks, what kind of snacks do you think each player likes? This is a joke question. This is from my wife. I asked her what we should talk about on the podcast tonight, and she always jokes about snacks. So I thought instead, how about what some Packers players would be as snacks instead? Aaron Jones, I think something like a seven-layer dip. So your seven-layer dip, not super efficient to make, but it's still pretty awesome when you get it exactly right. That's Aaron Jones. Not as efficient as passing the ball, but still, it can be pretty good. Marquez Valdez-Scantling seems like a microwave burrito to me really fast, potentially great, you also might regret going in that direction. A.J. Dillon, just an entire steak. Not really a snack, but if you look at A.J. Dillon, he is clearly not snack-sized. Finally, Aaron Rodgers couldn't come up with an exact food for this, but he would be, at least based on this week, some sort of food that used to be really, really popular, and people kind of talked themselves out of it for a while, but suddenly they've discovered a strange new respect for it, and they're like, hmm, Maybe a second look at this snack. That's Aaron Rodgers, at least as of this week. Who do you think the Packers as snack foods are? I would love to see your takes on that. And speaking of, I would love to see Snacks Harrison in uh, in Green Bay as well. But that's a discussion for another day. Uh, we have had plenty of Packers rumors this week. Maybe we'll do a post on that um, in the near future. And I'm sure those trade rumors are only going to, to heat up here in the near future. But... Uh, we've got plenty of time before the trade deadline, too, and lots of roster moves to come. So I've got for you in this episode, though. Thank you so much for listening in. If you know someone who would benefit uh, from this podcast and hearing it and talking through some of the things that we talked through on this episode, do me a favor and share it with them. That's going to help more people find the show and help us grow this conversation we're having around our favorite team, the Green Bay Packers, and ultimately 
that's going to help more people become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.